name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hi everybody and welcome to another Talking Bat from Batability Club. Hope you're all well today and wow, have I got an amazing, interesting guest for us all to listen to. Uh, Her name is Tracy Jolliffe and I'm quite sure many of you will be familiar with the name and some of you have maybe even met Tracy. Hi Tracy, how are you doing? Hello Neil, I'm doing very good, thank you. And what have you been up to today? Um, I've been at work today. I'm in the middle of setting up a new laboratory. So we are literally building it from scratch. And today it's lots and lots of documentation. So a bit dull, but looking forward to starting the actual work soon. Okay, okay. And that's round about, is that round about the Linlithgow area, is it? It is in Linlithgow, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. But you are now living in Glasgow, is that right? Because uh, yeah. Yes, I moved to Glasgow about a year ago. Wow, wow. Okay, well, Chrissy, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And there's quite a few things that we're going to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Chrissy's background when it comes to bats, etc. We're going to talk about a thing that uh, probably a lot of people will know her for, and that is her uh, expertise, enthusiasm, passion, whatever you want to call it, for bat rehabilitation and all things associated with that. And we're also going to talk about, uh, really importantly, uh, things to do with uh, rabies and handling bats and also the current situation regarding COVID and bat research and that kind of stuff. And Tracy, I think, is uh, one of the few people that I know in the bat world that when she starts talking about stuff like this, um, you actually feel as if you're talking to someone or listening to someone that uh, knows what they're talking about, okay? So uh, hopefully I haven't, haven't pulled you up too much there. <laughs> so I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn profile, uh, Tracy, before, before we kicked off today, and, uh, and I thought, uh, thought it would just be really good just to let people uh, see uh, how you describe yourself. So you're a biomedical scientist working in a microbiology laboratory diagnosing COVID, and you've got a keen interest in zoonotic and anthropogenic infections. Uh, oh, wow, try, try sticking all of that in a business card. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a business card with all of that on it? <laughs> no, no, I do need to get one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and outside of your work, as it says here, uh, involved with various aspects of bat conservation. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, mm-hmm. the care of sick and injured bats. And she's also, Tracy is also a bat roost visitor's license holder with SNH. And she regularly presents talks and workshops and the like at places like uh, Bat Conservation Trust conferences and that kind of stuff. Um, but here's something I want to ask you about, Tracy. Okay, I was having a look at your uh, Twitter handle. And uh, this is how you describe yourself on Twitter. <laughs> so here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so Tracy on her Twitter uh, feed describes herself as a science nerd, yeah. a rehabilitator of poorly bats, a microbiologist, so uh, that's mm-hmm. third on the list, I think, <laughs> uh, 
an ex-vet nurse, mm-hmm. a skeptic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a baker. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, a baker. I once did a good deed and an ambassador. Right, what's this once did a good deed stuff? What, what's that about? Because um, you must have done a lot more than one good deed, Tracy. Come on. The, the good deed I'm alluding to there is I am a volunteer ambassador for a charity called Give a Kidney which encourages people to donate their spare kidney because we were all born with two kidneys, but we actually only need one to function. It's one of those little quirks of evolution that we've ended up with two and we don't really need two. They both work at 50% each. So if you take one away, the other one just ramps up to 100%. So um, about eight years ago now, I donated one of my kidneys to somebody. Oh my word, oh my word. That is absolutely amazing. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> Not for everybody. <laughs> but uh, wow, wow, that is oh. that is totally amazing. Uh, there you go. Once did a good deed. Um, so uh, there you go. Something that some of you maybe didn't know about Tracy. She's got one kidney, uh, and somebody else is walking about with your other one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I don't know who it is. It, it, it went to, they treat it as if it's come from somebody who's died and donated. So I don't get to know, I don't know anything. I don't even know if it was man, woman, child. Okay. No. Wow. Wow. Well, okay. I'm so glad I asked you about that. Right. So let's, let's, uh, let's get back to the bats. <laughs> right. So, uh, right. So tell me a little bit about how the blazes did you get involved in bats in the first place? And I seem to remember when you first started BATS, you weren't in Scotland. You were you were down south somewhere. Is that right? Yes. I first got into bat work through being a veterinary nurse. So before I retrained as a microbiologist, I worked as a veterinary nurse for 20 years. And when you're a veterinary nurse, you're sort of... It's, it's an unwritten part of the job that you take the animals that no one else wants. So veterinary nurses are always taking home three-legged dogs and one-eyed cats and things like waifs and strays. And one day I took in a bat and I didn't know anything about bats, so I found out a little more about them. And that's how I got into bat work. So I started originally doing bat care. That's always been my focus from day one. Um, and yes, I was in living in Surrey at the time, so I started my bat career with Surrey Bat Group. Wow, wow. And how long ago would have that been? I mean. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Getting on for thirty years now. Wow. Okay. Right. So you you are you you've been in bats say maybe three four years slightly longer than me then. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. And I think you moved up to Scotland. Uh, that's when I got to know you. Probably. Mm-hmm. Eek, I'm thinking maybe what. 10 years ago, 15 years oh, ago? More than, I think I moved back up to Scotland. I lived here a long time ago and okay. I moved back up in 2007. So 13 years I've been back in Scotland now. Wow, wow, okay. So what's happening in this picture here? I'm, I'm a little bit concerned uh, that uh, you and I think it's Les, you and Les are up a ladder and you don't have any PPE on. <laughs> no, bad people. No, that, we're actually not as far off the ground as it looks. Um, so that's Les Hatton and Emma Castle-Smith from Five Bat Group. And I've been in Five Bat Group ever since I came up to Scotland. They're a fabulous little group, very active. And that's in Tensmuir Forest. And they've been monitoring Tensmuir for decades. And we've got quite a healthy population of natural bats there. So we go out and we ring all the juveniles. And that's what we're doing there. We found, we found a box with... I know, 20, 30 um, natteras in. So we're both up there trying to 
grab them all before they go. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Excellent. Sounds good. I've, I've actually been up there a couple of times and mm. uh, yeah, it's uh, quite an amazing place. I mean, not just from a bat point of view, but Tensmuir Forest is just a lovely place to be. And, uh, and part of it goes pretty much right up onto the beach, doesn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 There's about, about 12 miles of coastline there. So yeah, you've got the beach, you've got the woods, there's some old ice houses. Um, it, it is a fantastic place. There's red squirrels, all sorts. Yeah, yeah. I'll have this other picture because you're kind of looking, uh, I don't know, I mean, I was trying to work out what was actually going on with the picture and the words underneath were a little bit blurry. I think there it's is. something to do a, with a wildlife crime unit or something. Yes, or that... Um, that I spoke at a wildlife crime conference for um, the Police Scotland ran. The guy to my, the guy in the suit uh, is Ian Lang, who has retired now, but he was the wildlife crime officer for Fife, and he was he was a really really good wildlife crime officer. Very interested, um, very interested in bats, and they asked me to speak at one of their conferences. Wow, and you got your picture in the paper as well, yeah. I did. I don't, I don't know why the courier were there, but they were. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, no, I absolutely love that. So tell me, tell me about some, you know, if, if there was one really fascinating thing or exciting thing you've done with bats outside of bat rehab uh, or your microbiology related stuff, give us something really interesting that you've done with bats or seen with bats or been with bats. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. when I started doing bat work is where it's taken me geographically. So I've been out to, um, I went out to Texas on a bat holiday. I treated myself for my 40th birthday and I went out and did a course um, at Bat World in Texas where they do um, a lot of bat rehab. But I also went to Bracken Cave and saw the bats at Bracken Cave, which is the largest, not only the largest bat roost in the world, but also the largest collection of animal, of mammals in the world. There's oh anything up between sort of twenty to forty million bats in one cave, and it is just the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Um, I've also been to Romania, Transylvania, to a bat conference. You have to go to a bat conference <laughs> at least once in your life. That was the um, European Bat Research Symposium, um, and a couple of years ago, I went out to a bats and infectious diseases conference in Colorado. So, yeah, it's taken me all over the world, which I, I would never have thought of when I first started. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, you know, I, I can relate to that. And I haven't done any of those things that, uh, that you've discussed there. But uh, I think, quite frankly, if someone had said to me when I started BATS, uh, this is what you're going to end up doing, uh, I would have probably ran a mile and went, <laughs> oh, no, I can't do that. That's well beyond me. And yes. you, you must feel... You must feel very, very similar for different reasons because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, when you start a hobby like this, you, you've no idea where it can take you. 
Yeah, and and now, I mean, I would say that uh, I don't know. I mean, I follow social media. I obviously know you reasonably well because I've known you for some mm-hmm. time. And uh, I mean, you really within you know within your core area of knowledge, you know, it's like you are the person. <laughs> you are the person <laughs> to go with. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because when I first went into microbiology, I started off doing bacteriology. So I was looking at bacteria rather than the viruses. And it was bats that got me the job because I was working in a DEFRA laboratory and I was wearing a bat t-shirt one day and Tony Fuchs came up to me in the canteen and said, do you know about bats? And I said, yes. And he said, well, would you like a job in rabies? And I said, I don't know anything about viruses. And he said, don't worry, you teach us about bats and we'll teach you about rabies. And that's how I became a virologist, literally approached in a canteen by a strange man. (laughs) Wow, wow. And all because we're wearing a dodgy (laughs) 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 t-shirt. I hope you've kept that t-shirt because it's obviously brought you a lot of luck. (laughs) I I don't think that t-shirt fits me anymore. <laughs> I'm sure that's that true. I'm sure that's that true. Right, what, what, what I want to move on to now is uh, your back rehab stuff because I know this is something that uh, that you're really passionate and knowledgeable uh, and experienced about. Uh, so, just talk us a little bit through uh, some of the rehab work you've done, uh, where that's taken you specifically. Uh, stuff like that yeah yeah well the the picture of the bat uh under anesthetic was clover who was a serotine bat that i think a lot of scottish bat workers will have met um she was found when i was living in surrey and she was injured by a cat unfortunately and despite the vet trying to operate on her he couldn't really um he he couldn't get well enough to fly so she stayed with me and i had her for 13 years so she did an awful lot of back PR. I, th- I think I say hundreds of people, but probably thousands of people over the years would have met her, you know, said hello to her, handled her on one of the handling courses. So she she um, she had a very useful life and, and she was a very happy little bat. She would just go to sleep in your hand. She was quite calm, quite used to being handled. Um, so she's done she's done a lot of good work. Um, the other photo at the top, I'm doing a a day course on um, trying to encourage people to get into back care because we are very short of back carers in Scotland. Um, I take bats from all over Scotland that if people ask me to, um, and it gets, I've had dozens and dozens this year already. It's been a very busy year. So we're always trying to encourage people to get into doing back rehab. Unfortunately, despite the fact that we have very busy courses, not that many people tend to follow it through. So we're still short of back carers. Um, I do a lot of that with uh, Natalie Todman over in Edinburgh and so far all the courses we've done have been over the Edinburgh side but this year we're planning on doing one in Glasgow but of course unfortunately with coronavirus that had to get cancelled so we do a lot of that sort of just voluntary work and then the photo at the bottom is the Edinburgh Veterinary School the Dick Vet School and we go there um, usually about once a year sometimes once every other year and we speak to trainee vets so we're trying to get them we're not trying to convert them to becoming bat carers but we just want to tell them about handling bats how to identify a bat when it comes in the sort of injuries that might get presented to them Um, and then we get one of the vets from the school who actually covers the legal side of it you know what they're permitted to do what they're ethically obliged to do as well 
Wow, wow. Have you any idea how many bats have actually gone through your, you, you personally from a rehabilitation process? I mean, it must be hundreds or... It must be hundreds. And you know, I might actually go and look at that figure because I've always kept records right from day one for every bat I've cared for. And I do have a huge, oh, I've got two folders now full of records. So one day, maybe in the winter when they're all hibernating, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll count them all. I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you're seeing a really nice uh, backdrop of your uh, flat in Glasgow there, yeah? And uh, I've, I've, I've always kind of tried to imagine uh, what your uh, living <laughs> arrangements would be like. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean that in a dodgy way, okay? Uh, but but, but I, I know how many bats that uh, you sometimes look after, and I know you've got, mm. a, you've got a cat, it's, it's Rowan, I think. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. she's asleep. Yeah. And... Uh, and I just always imagined uh, your uh, living arrangements just being a total chaos. But but what I'm seeing behind you actually looks it looks relatively normal. Yeah, it is. I do have. I'll I'll move my screen slightly. Okay. I do have some bats, so you can see. There's a couple of little bats there, but no, okay. no, it's just. <laughs> There's the cat asleep on the sofa. Okay. So, yeah, just a normal flat. <laughs> okay. So so. So where do the bats stay? The bats are in the spare room. So when I when I buy somewhere to live, it always has to have two room, two bedrooms, one for me and one for the bats. In fact, I've I've had the same solicitor since I was 18 years old. And when I, I put an offer in on a flat in Edinburgh a few years ago, and it was only a one-bedroom flat, and I left the instruction with him to put the offer in, and he phoned me up at work and they said, Oh, there's somebody on the line for you. And I picked up the phone and this voice, he didn't even introduce himself. He just went, where are the bats going to go? Because <laughs> he knows me, he knows me well. Um, so you hadn't realized it was a one bedroom flat or? Yeah, so uh, there, was, there was somewhere for them to go. There was like a sort of, um, like a little box room. But uh, yeah, his first concern was where the bats were going to go. Okay, no, you've got to keep that, you've got to keep that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's brilliant. And, uh, and you've got some interesting bats at the moment. Uh, do you still have the Cools Pipistrel? I have the Cools Pipistrel, yes. He's been with me about four years now. Um, he was found on a contain, in a container ship uh, in Aberdeen a few years ago. So they opened a container and there was a little bat in there and um, Isabel from Aberdeen got involved first of all and then Amanda kindness took the bat in and and then I got phoned about it and nobody actually knew what the bat was we just knew it wasn't a British bat um it was very obvious when you looked at it that it wasn't one of ours um which is fine I mean I'm, my bat ID skills are actually not very good I will confess to that um but I do know when I look at a bat whether it's a British bat or not and he clearly wasn't so we got him ID'd um, and he had to stay in quarantine because he was assisted passage. If he'd flown here on his own, it would have been different, but because he actually was brought in on, uh, on a ship, he had to go into quarantine. So I very swiftly turned my bathroom into a quarantine station, which became DEFRA registered and the vet came and visited um, and he stayed in quarantine. And then fortunately I do live on my own, Nobody, it didn't matter that nobody else could go in the bathroom because I had a padlock on the door. Um, and after his quarantine period, we were refused permission to take him back to where he came from. 
uh, we couldn't release him because he was not on non-native to the UK. So it was euthanize him or keep him in captivity. And he's a very calm little bat. He was quite happy in captivity. So we, I decided to keep him. And he now lives in a large cage with a female soprano pipistrelle and a female brown long-eared bat. So wow. he's got a little, little harem of girls and he seems quite happy. <laughs> excellent stuff excellent stuff uh, the, the picture you paint there of your padlocked bathroom and uh, and the defra people they're uh, having to visit you that, that's the kind of chaos that uh... <laughs> <laughs> well it had to be it had to be a room that no animals or people could go into easily so the bedroom i had my cat with me the bat room obviously had bats in and they couldn't be part of the quarantine. Uh, so the bathroom was the only room really. So that's, that was it. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Right. I want to move on if that's okay. Um, let's, let's talk about bat rabies. And there's a couple of things I particularly want you to uh, talk about here. Mm -hmm. And firstly, that is, you know, the, the strength of the vaccinations that uh, many of us get for rabies mm. and how effective these vaccinations might be. And also why it is so darn important that people handling bats, even if it's just a pipistrel, uh, should be wearing proper gloves. Uh, but before you do that, Tracy, uh, maybe you'd like to explain yourself on this left-hand picture, right? Because I look at that and I go, Oh, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what happened there is we were in Tensmuir. It was part of the, um, the, the trip that you saw earlier when Les and I were up the ladder. And we were ringing the natteras um, to monitor the population. And when I'm ringing bats, I hold the bat in my left hand. And I have a glove on that hand. And then I have an ungloved hand in the right hand to do the ringing. And then that bat had an injury. So somebody handed me the bat and said, can you have a look at that and tell me what you think about it? And the, in, the wing was on the, the injury was on the other wing. So I, without thinking twice about it, just moved the bat from one hand to another. And then my, um, my lodger was actually with us that day taking photographs. She was a camera woman for STV and she came out to take photographs that day. And she got that photograph of me. And I always put it up when I do talks because you know, we all do stupid things sometimes. Um, and when you do something like that, that's when you do risk getting yourself bitten. But you've got to be aware that it happens and then just do something about it. So, I, yeah, I never shy away from showing people that photo because we all make mistakes. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, so let, let's talk about then uh, what the risk is and why the risks are there. Because I think some interesting information came out a few years ago now which mm. talked about lots of different strains of rabies or newly discovered strains of rabies, I think it was, yeah. and how potentially the vaccinations that uh, we think are there to protect us may not necessarily be as foolproof as maybe once considered. Uh, do you want mm. to talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. Yes, yes, certainly. Well, rabies is, uh, it's not just one single virus, it's a family of viruses. And when I worked in rabies, there was only seven genotypes. So... Um, each, you can do like DNA fingerprinting on a virus so you can tell exactly what virus it is. So there were seven genotypes. They are now, I think we're up to about 15 or 16 different genotypes. So 
as our understanding of viruses improves and the techniques improve, we're discovering more and more different types of rabies virus, but they are all still rabies viruses and they will all still cause rabies regardless of the name of the virus. Um, and they used to split them up into two groups. So you had group one viruses and you had group two viruses. Rabies virus is classical rabies is genotype one. So that's the archetypal rabies virus. And that's the one that you get worldwide. So if you found a dog with rabies in Africa or India or a raccoon in America, it would have classical genotype one rabies. And that was group one. Um, now, fortunately for bat workers in Europe, European Bat-Lysivirus 1, which we find in Serotines, and European Bat-Lysivirus 2, which we find in Dorbentons, are all part of the Group 1 of viruses. And the rabies vaccine is raised against classical rabies. So because EBLV1 and 2 are in that group, it means that if you have the rabies vaccine, you've got pretty good cross-reaction if you get bitten by a bat that's got EBLV1 or 2. Um, the group two viruses were genetically very different. So they had their own little group and they're some of the rarer ones, some of the viruses you get in Africa. And although you get a little bit of cross protection with the vaccine, it's not really considered enough to be safe. So when I worked in rabies, only the very senior scientists were allowed to work with those, uh, those rabies virus strains because Although we were vaccinated, we weren't considered to be um, fully vaccinated against the group two viruses. So that's how it was for many years. And then a few years ago, we discovered a couple of new viruses, new rabies viruses. Um, and the one that's of main concern is West Caucasian bat virus. And this was found in the Caucasian mountains. So that's the border sort of Georgia, Armenia, Turkey, that area. And that was so genetically diverse that it was given its own group. So it was given group three. So if you're vaccinated against rabies and you get bitten by a bat that's got West Caucasian bat virus, you're not going to have any protection at all. And a lot of bat workers thought, well, you know, that's, that's a long way away. We don't have to worry about it. But a couple of weeks ago, Bat Conservation Trust issued a newsletter to say that they had found a cat in Italy that had West Caucasian bat virus. So it has moved further across Europe and it is moving towards us. And of course, bats being the only flying mammals, that will come as no surprise to people that it is moving. Um, and it is worrying for me because I know a lot of bat workers who go abroad and do a lot of bat work in Europe, in Greece and Malta and places like that. And unfortunately, I see a lot of pictures from people not wearing gloves and they keep saying to me, oh, it's okay, I've had my rabies jab. But your, your rabies jab, is, it's not 100%. Um, and it should be a safety net. Your, your first line of, of defense of not getting rabies is not getting bitten. And you do that two ways, learning to handle bats properly and wearing gloves. So if you do get a bat that's going to bite you, hopefully it's not going to get a break in the skin. Um, and I think this, th this cat in Italy should be a wake-up call for all bat workers. No matter how experienced you are, no matter how often you have your rabies boosters, there are viruses out there that it's not going to protect against. So yeah. I, I, I found that quite worrying. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I really do despair when, uh, when I see some fairly, some extremely experienced, in fact, amongst the most experienced bat workers yeah. out there. And there's not, there's not a huge percentage, but there, mm -hmm. there are certainly 
a small number uh, that uh, consistently handle bats uh, without gloves on. Mm-hmm. And and I just think, you know, why are you doing that? And mm-hmm. and some people will say it's difficult. I can't feel the bat properly. I can't handle a bat with, with gloves on. And my kind of thought to that really is, if you can't handle a bat with gloves on, then don't handle a bat. Um, you, yeah. shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing it. And, mm-hmm. and I'm one of these... I suppose I would probably be regarded as old school now, okay? Although there's a whole lot of people that are much older school than me, as say you and I both know. Um, but, but I had, you know, like many, many people uh, after, uh, after David uh, McRae, uh, you know, died, you know, we were so accustomed to handling bats, you know, without gloves. Mm-hmm. And then it probably took me, two full seasons to get back to the level I was handling bats with gloves compared to handling bats with, without gloves. Yeah. I just had to persevere with it and just keep going with it and get better at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it is, it is awkward and, and I do, and I'm, I class myself as one of the old school as well. When we first started doing bat work, we didn't have to wear gloves because nobody realized the threat that we had. Um, but you get used to it. You practice and you find gloves that you're comfortable with and you just get used to doing it. And eventually it does become second nature. Um, it's like wearing a seatbelt. If you get in a car now and don't put your seatbelt on, it feels really weird because we're so used to it. And it's the same with gloves. If I was to pick a bat with no gloves on, it would be, oh, what have I done? What have I done? Um, so, yeah, I, I think even the old school bat workers don't have any excuse because we're, we're in that group. Um, and certainly young bat workers now, they should be getting that, you know, drummed into them from day one. Um, and it does always surprise me, actually. There's always, when, I, when I, I teach on courses, there's always one or two younger people who have no idea about David McRae and that, you know, he was a Scottish bat worker that died. And they're like, oh, yeah, but surely he caught it abroad. And I'm like, no, no, he caught, he caught it in Forfa. You know, it, it was a British bat. And there were other people handling the same bats on the same day who were lucky enough not to get it. But, you know, one, one bat worker death has been, you know, it's tragic for those involved um, and for his friends and family. But from a bat PR point of view, you know, people say to me, you know, sometimes members of the public, oh, didn't somebody die of rabies from a British bat? And you say, well, yes, but we, you know, now we're vaccinated and we wear gloves and there's no risk. We've done a lot of research. But if another bat worker dies, you know, then, then people will have the ammunition to say, I don't want bats in my house anymore. Yeah. So if people don't want to wear gloves and want to expose themselves to viruses that might kill them, you know, from, from a very selfish point of view, go ahead. But you've got to think about the bats. You've got to think about how, what it would do to bat conservation if that happened again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I've actually got uh, in, in my office and I use it in training courses quite a lot um, I've got something like a dozen of the newspaper front pages and internal stories that were uh, written in the yeah. in the mainstream press uh, whilst David was in hospital and, and after he sadly died. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you actually look at these headlines and the pictures that were used and how some of the stuff was described by some of the tabloid newspapers, mm-hmm. It was, I mean, it was just horrific for so many different reasons, yeah. including obviously the most uh, horrific being that uh, that somebody died. But but the way that uh, 
especially the you know the newspapers they handled the story mm. um, it was pretty pretty bad and when I show mm. people these newspaper I've got them all laminated and when I show people these newspaper headlines today they're absolutely shocked you know when they yeah. when they see the stuff um, yeah. yeah so uh, so uh, if you ever want a copy of those I'm sure I can arrange a copy of them if, if yeah you... I think I would like those actually because I, I think it's important that we don't forget you know it was only 17 18 years ago and already yeah. there's a whole generation of back workers coming through who've never heard those stories and I think it is important to keep reminding people that yeah. you know it happened and it could happen again if people aren't careful and when I do that, Tracy, I'll send you the slides. Okay? Yeah, that's lovely. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah. I don't know why I did it at the time. I just kept the stuff at the time. And then many years later, I found it in one of my filing cabinets. And I thought, I'm going to use that to just yeah. really show to people that this isn't just about individual choice. It's yeah. about the potential uh, damage that uh, newspapers, mm -hmm. etc., can do to back conservation. Certainly. So, yeah, yeah. I suppose that takes us very nicely, or uh, maybe nicely is not the right word, obviously, but it mm -hmm. takes us to this current uh, situation that we're in. And of course, bats have been uh, caught up in this as well. Um, and I, I suppose what I want to do first of all, um, let, let's just let's just try and answer this question that's up here first of all and then that gets that out of the way yeah. and then I want you to talk a little bit about uh, did COVID really come from bats you know what's the likelihood of that does anybody actually know and also what impact is this having on bat research you know people that mm -hmm. need to catch bats ring bats that kind of stuff and um, you know I want to talk a little bit about that but to kick things off and I'm going to be truthful ladies and gentlemen uh, a bat ability club member uh, Shannon I won't use your second name Shannon okay but uh, Shannon asked me this question a few weeks ago and I saw the question and I just thought to myself I am not I am not capable <laughs> I'm not capable of answering that question but that was a couple of weeks after uh, Tracy had agreed to do this interview and I just thought to myself if anybody in the bat world can answer that question, or at least make some sense out of it, it's, it's going to be Tracy. So I'm going to read the question out. A little bit of sense, <laughs> I'm going to read the question out, okay? And then Tracy, you try and uh, tell us uh, in, in layman's terms, okay? <laughs> if possible, or layperson's terms, rather. Um, what's going on? Yeah. So what is it that allows bats to be able to survive diseases for example, rabies and coronaviruses that can have a detrimental effect <clears> on <throat> other species. So, for example, humans. So, uh, over to you, Tracy. <laughs> right. Well, this is the $64,000 question, and it's one that we don't have the full answer to. So, um, essentially, it's to do with your immune system and all animals, all mammals have immune systems, and they are incredibly complex things that it's not just antibodies antigen um i did a little bit of immunology as part of my degrees and it was one of those courses that was very interesting at the time but there's no way i was going to become an immunologist because it was far too hard um, because you have all sorts of different aspects of the immune system and they all form cascades and one thing triggers another thing and 
it's very, very complex. So essentially with um, bats and their immune system, the initial thought was they had some kind of super immune system where they had the ability to fight all of these, mostly viruses. Um, and for a long time, that was the focus of it was how were they doing it? How were they killing the viruses? But now the current thinking, and there is a lot of people across the world working on this constantly, which is why, you know, we don't have the full answer yet because it's going to be a very long-term study. What we think they do now is actually switch off part of their immune system because a lot of viruses, it's not actually the virus that causes damage to the person or the animal. It's actually the immune system and the cascade of the immune system that it triggers. So for example, hantavirus, which you catch from rats, um, by the time a person starts showing symptoms of having a hantavirus infection, your body has already killed off the virus. So if you take a blood sample from somebody showing the symptoms, there won't be any hantavirus there. Your body has already killed it. But what's happened is it sparked this cascade and your immune system just goes into overdrive and starts producing all of these, um, they're called cytokines, and they're basically uh, just chemicals that your body produces to fight viruses but it forgets that it's already done it and it just keeps going and it's like a positive feedback loop. And that's what causes people to die in hantavirus. So it's your own immune system that's causing the damage, not the virus. And that's to a large degree what they think coronavirus is doing, which is why um, there was a lot in the news recently about dexamethasone, which is a treatment for coronavirus and it, it dampened, all that's doing is, is stopping your immune system. Um, so it stops the immune system behaving in that way and that just allows your body to heal. So it's not actually killing the virus, it's just stopping your body overreacting to it. So this is what we think the bats are doing. They just have the ability to switch off part of their immune system. So instead of trying to fight the virus, they just live with it because if the virus is not actually doing any harm, then why bother fighting it? So that is the current thinking about how they can survive a lot of these viruses. Wow. I knew. I knew when I asked you to be here today. Okay. <laughs> you but, know what? Science is a dynamic um, topic. And tomorrow somebody might release a paper going, no, that's nonsense. This is what happens. But the current thinking is that's what they're doing. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Because, um, yeah. Even now, after hearing you describe that, I still don't think I would be capable of answering the question. But uh, <laughs> but at least now we've got you uh, on tape, <laughs> and we can say, yeah, no, watch this uh, sixty seconds, and uh, yeah. you'll understand it a little better. Provided science doesn't overtake uh, where we are. It's if that happens, if that happens, Chase, yeah. I'll invite you back next year, and you can update okay. it. <laughs> Right, let, let's talk a little bit now about, uh, right, so COVID, did it come from a bat? Now, I'm quite sure you, nobody knows 100% the answer here, but it didn't go from directly from bats into humans. Uh, that seems to be the thinking, is, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, so coronavirus, um, again, a bit like rabies, is a whole family of viruses. So there's, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 different coronaviruses that we know of already. There's probably hundreds out there where we haven't discovered yet. And coronaviruses depend on their, 
how severe a disease they cause depends on the individual coronavirus. So for example, the common cold is caused by a coronavirus. In fact, it's caused by four different coronaviruses that are constantly circulating around the world. You feel ill for a couple of days, you have a runny nose, and then it goes away. And that's a coronavirus. But you also have MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which um, came about, oh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, which causes it's got very, very high mortality. That's a coronavirus. We have the original SARS, so SARS-CoV-1, which um, again causes very severe disease. Um, and then last year we had SARS-CoV-2, which is the current coronavirus that causes COVID-19 as a disease. Yeah. Um, and did it come from bats? It, it's quite likely. Um, nobody's got a definitive answer for that yet. Some papers are saying it does. Some papers are saying it doesn't. I, I downloaded one today that says it definitely does and actually gave a time period of the 1940s. So some scientists have gone back and they've looked at um, bats and bat viruses that they have in the freezer because all virologists keep everything forever. So we can go back and we can do those kind of studies. And they think they've actually found a bat coronavirus that's very similar to the one we have now from, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Wow. So it, it, it is quite likely that it comes from a bat, but we're not entirely sure. So the jury's out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it was it didn't go directly from bats to humans. They think they think it came via a, what do they call it? A, an oh, the pangolin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very viruses are they're true pa they're true um, parasites, and they can't complete their life cycle without getting into the cell of the host. So a bacteria can live in the environment and it can replicate. So it can live on food and cause food poisoning and things like that. And you can catch a bacteria or a parasite from any other organism. Whereas viruses have to get into your cell to cause disease. And in order to do that, they have to latch onto a surface receptor on the cell. So your cell is covered, a human cell or an animal cell is covered in lots of different types of receptors, which are like sort of spikes of protein. And it's almost like a lock and key mechanism. So unless you have a receptor on your cell that recognizes the virus that comes in, um, it won't do any harm. And that's the reason that humans don't catch cat flu. And it's the reason we can't give, you know, various viruses to our pets because they don't have the right surface receptors. So it's very, very rare for a virus to go directly from a bat to a human just because our surface receptors are too different. And that's the case for a lot of viruses going from host to host. Um, so they always have to go through an intermediate host usually to infect another animal, in which case a human animal. So for example, Hendra yeah, Hendra virus, which uh, they get in Australia from bats, has to go through horses. So if you, you can't, it's very, very rare for a human to catch Hendra virus directly from a bat, but horses can catch it from bats and then horses can pass it on to humans. Um, and it's seen every year with influenza. So when, when we have, every year we get a different influenza virus because it changes so much and we have to have a new vaccine against it. And the mixing pot for a lot of viruses is pigs. And that's because pigs have lots of different types of receptors on their cells and they have some that look like human receptors and they have some that look a little bit like bird receptors. So they can catch 
swine they can catch bird flu from a bird it will then take up a little bit of the cell surface receptor dna from the pig and then the pig will excrete out an influenza virus that can be caught by humans so that's so pigs are often the mixing pot for viruses so they usually have to go through an intermediate host and what that host is will depend on the virus but pigs are usually the first thing they look at just because we know from historical uh, outbreaks that we know pigs can do that Wow, wow. Thank you for that. Thank you. So we've now got, uh, let, let's move on uh, to the to the guidance that bat workers are being given at the moment when it comes to catching bats, handling bats, being in close facility to bats, for example, you know, within an enclosed roosting environment. And I know there's a lot more to it than is just shown in this uh, you know, in this picture here, which uh, summarises uh, the IUCN principles that we should be adopting as bat workers now uh, for the moment. Um, talk a little bit about that. I, I think I think you were involved in some shape or form. Uh, yes, with this. I, was, yeah. I was one of, uh, I was invited to be one of a very large committee of people who drew up these guidelines. So um, involved in Skype meetings with various people across, across the globe, actually. So it was quite a, a wide range of expertise that they had coming in. And I was asked to represent that rehab workers. Um, and we were just discussing the risks, um, what the current science was, and what sort of guidelines we should issue for doing that work. So they've got guidelines for doing ecology type bat work, they've got guidelines for bat rehabbers, and then they're still working on it. The committee is still going without me now because I've done my bit, but they're coming up with um, guidance for people who do caving and people who collect guano because some countries that's quite big business. So they're trying to cover all bases in terms of um, bats and human health. Uh, and the focus on this, uh, as opposed to human health, is actually the risk of us giving bats coronavirus because uh, a zoonotic infection is a virus that a human can catch from an animal, but there's also anthropogenic infections. So that's infections that humans can pass on to animals. Um, and because coronavirus is such a new, or COVID-19 is such a new disease, we don't know whether we can pass it to bats. We don't, we're not really sure where it came from. So, you know, there's a risk and there is a credible risk in, in the eyes of all scientists that we could pass it on to bats. So the worry is that we would have the infection and not realize it because you've got an incubation period where you're shedding the virus but not showing symptoms yourself. Um, and the worry is that if you pass it on to a bat, the bat can then go back to its roost and spread a potentially fatal disease to bats. So that was the focus of these guidelines. So it's not, it's not to, to save the humans, it's to save the bats. Yeah, yeah, and and of course, uh, bats are so vital uh, in the Absolutely. ecosystem for yeah. so many reasons. It's not, I mean, bats aren't just there because humans find them fascinating or interesting or in some mm. cases scary or whatever. Uh, they're 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 performing extremely vital uh, roles in the environment and. Mm. Uh, you know, so it's so, so important at so many different levels that uh, we, we try and protect our bat species. You know? mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and at the moment, this pretty much has meant that uh, 
you know, anybody doing what I would regard as normal uh, bat-related handling, capturing work, um, going inside roosts, for example, that pretty much is off limits at the moment, and quite rightly so, um, because unless it falls into, I think, what would be regarded as essential work that can't be done in any other way in order to achieve mm. the same objective, uh, pretty much the message we're getting here from IUCN, which uh, the Bat Conservation Trust has uh, fully endorsed, I believe, yeah. is, is don't do it, you know. Just yeah. uh, bat workers take a holiday. Uh, you ain't doing anything like this this year. Mm. And and if you're allowed to do something like this going forward in the short term, uh, it's going to have to be done maybe a little bit differently to how it was done in the past. Uh, is that kind of how you see it as well, Tracy? I mean, anything yes. like that there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I was involved um, mostly in the, the bat rehab side of things. But yes, any bat work, any work involving bats that involves close contact with them really shouldn't be getting done, as you say, unless it's absolutely essential. So standing outside a roost in an emergence count, you know, doing any kind of bat detector work, that's all fine because you're not in close contact with the bat. But you always have to consider that you could be passing something to the bat um so anything that involves handling i mean we've all the local back groups have had to suspend uh all of our normal work so normally we, at this time of year and in the spring we would have been going out doing back box checks ringing the juveniles so none of that can take place because although it disrupts your long-term studies um and it's no fun not doing that because that's one of the the best parts of bat work in in terms of local back groups it's just not worth the risk because at the moment the risk is it's unknown, but it's a credible risk. So we can't, you know, we just can't do it. Um, and in terms of bat rehab, that caused quite a stir. And anyone who's seen my posts on, on the Facebook bat groups will know that, you know, there are, there are people out there and it's with the best will in the world, they want to do bat work. But if you don't have the right facilities and the right experience, then you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and, and it came about because I said that nobody should be keeping bats in their bedroom because there are quite a few people out there doing bat rehab. They don't have the room to do it, so they're keeping the bats in the bedroom. Now, in my mind, the guideline quite clearly says that you shouldn't be in a confined space with a bat for any length of time. And I think if you're keeping bats in your bedroom, then you shouldn't be doing bat rehab. Um, and that, that made me quite a few, um, I wouldn't say enemies, but yeah. I, I didn't make any friends by saying that, um, but I, I stand by it. I, um, you know, I, I know it's, it's difficult to say to somebody you can't do something, especially when it's looking at the welfare, uh, uh, you know, of an animal. But, you know, I'd like to do badger rehab, but I live in a flat in Glasgow, so I can't do it because I don't have the facilities to do it. Therefore, if you're not going to do it properly, you shouldn't be doing it at all. Um, so it's been a difficult one, you know, to say to people, no, you really shouldn't be doing that. But we've always got to think of the welfare of the bat first of all. Yeah, but, but I suppose also uh, in that kind of scenario that you're talking about, people that are considering the welfare of individual bats, mm. um, the, the way that you've been discussing this uh, today, it's what happens if that individual bat goes back into a colony and then causes, so it's not really about the individual bat, it's, about, yeah. it's potentially yeah. about the welfare of 
an awful lot of uh, animals that that individual bat might associate with going forward. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, bat, you know, bat rehab, there is still a lot of bat workers out there who quite rightly don't think that we should be doing bat rehab because the amount of time and effort and money we put into it as individual bat workers, does it make a huge difference in terms of numbers of bats? Probably not. But I think it's it, the amount of good public relations bat rehabbers do um, you know, going out, picking up a bat, talking to a family about bats who may have been terrified of them. And then you turn them into people that love bats and you convince them that having a bat roost in their house is a great thing, not a bad thing. So I think from a public relations point of view, bat rehab is very, very important. Yeah. Um, but then, as you say, at the moment, the risk of introducing a bat back into a colony, having given it a virus is just too big a risk at the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Tracy, I think I think that's us coming very close to the end. Uh, I was going to ask you, Rosalind Franklin, what, what's that about? <laughs> Your email address. <laughs> Rosalind Franklin is um, a very famous woman scientist. Um, she was the third person who discovered DNA. So we traditionally think of Watson and Crick. They got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. She was the third person in the team and she never got the recognition. She never got the Nobel Prize. And when her boss was asked about her by the press, he famously said she could be quite pretty if she tried a bit more. So that, that was how female scientists were, were viewed. Oh, Rowan wants to come and say hello. Oh, hi, Rowan. <laughs> yeah, so she was a very famous scientist. And so when I was looking for a sort of slightly more anonymous email, that's the one I went with. Well, okay. I've, I've always wanted to ask you about that because I've seen that email address many, many times in my inbox. And I thought yeah. to myself, what, what, one day I'm going to ask her about that. Uh, I, I never realised that day would be in this kind of uh, format, but, uh, but thank you. And your Twitter handle is there uh, at yeah. uh, the underscore bat nurse. I mm -hmm. think you've got over a thousand followers. That's I have, yes. Wow. I, I, I was sort of bobbling along at a couple of hundred. And then um, a few months ago, I had a bat that was found in the somebody's sink and they pour milk over him. And that's how they discovered he was there because he squeaked. So he came into me absolutely stinking of sour milk. So I gave him a bath and then I brushed him because his hair was a bit, you know, all over the place. And I took a little video of me brushing this bat and put it on Twitter and it went a bit crazy and had like 10,000 views. And suddenly my, my followers <laughs> shot up. Right, that's how to do it. Okay, that, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to try something like that to get my Twitter right. <laughs> okay, Tracy, you know, it has been a total, total joy uh, speaking to you oh, today. Oh, thank you. And, thank uh, you for inviting me. No, it's, it's good. Thank you for being here. And, you know, I've, I've found out some stuff about you that I didn't know before. So <laughs> at, per, at a personal level, uh, <laughs> I found it really, really interesting. Uh, and I'm quite sure I'll be watching this uh, going forward uh, are going to uh, learn things uh, or find out stuff about you that uh, mostly they'll be happy to find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there you go, everybody. Uh, that's uh, Tracy Jolliffe. Uh, I hope you found that a fascinating conversation. And follow her on Twitter. Uh, and I can guarantee to you that if you do follow her on Twitter, uh, now and again, uh, there are some 
uh, quite interesting, uh, potentially on the edge, <laughs> on the edge tweets. Okay, so uh, <laughs> she's, she's not afraid to say what she really thinks and uh, that's part of what makes her wonderful. So I'm gonna uh, stop the recording now. hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you. Mm-hmm.